Hey, if you got your Bible, take your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one. And uh, we're going to be there a little bit today. We're in this series called Joy to the World. Very excited about this. And uh, I so appreciated John, you know, kind of sharing a little story from his childhood and one of his Christmas memories. That's kind of where I wanted to start today. I think I was probably like in fourth or fifth grade. And I, used to, I, I loved to read. And I've always loved to read. And I would go to the library all I could. And I went to our little school library. And uh, there was this book I found. It was a thick book. It was on camping. And then I got it and I checked it out. I read it and it was amazing. I checked that book out at least four or five times that year. I loved it. I mean, I don't know what it was about it. Like I just wanted to camp so bad and they made it sound so good and so glamorous. And so when Christmas came around, I told my mom and dad, man, I want some gear. And so my mom and dad were so generous that year. They gave me this little orange two-man pup tent. I got a mess kit. I got a canteen. I got this little cool Swiss Army knife kind of thing. And I don't, a sleeping bag. I got all the camping gear. And I would go out and I would camp, you know, out in the backyard. But it just wasn't all that great. And then my friend in school, his name was David. His mom and dad had a big home. They lived... Uh, they, they had a bunch of cattle on a small pasture, about, about 40 acres. And so I was talking to David. I said, man, we should go camp. I got all the stuff. <clears throat> we should go camp in your pasture. And so we load up one day. We hike. Man, we hiked a long ways. I bet it was a quarter mile. And we got, you know, got to where we really couldn't see his house anymore. And we're looking for a good place to camp. And there really only one stand of trees anywhere in the whole place. And then, you know, these kind of ugly old trees. And we kind of go inside this stand of trees, and the cattle would go inside this stand of trees, and that's kind of where they would hang out. And uh, so it's just bare dirt inside this big group of trees, and there's cow chips everywhere. But I was like, man, this is where we got to camp, you know, because, you know, you got to have some trees. I don't know why I thought that. And so we, we set up camp. You know, we cleared out all the cow chips, right, and these big mesquite trees everywhere, and we're kind of sleeping in the bare dirt. And I made the fire, you know, according to the book and everything. And we cooked some hot dogs and stuff like that. And uh, man, we went to sleep that night and the cattle were out there, you know, they were lowing and all this. And it was just really dirty and it was just bad. And we got done. We, my dad came the next day. I cleaned everything up and got, shook all the dirt out of my tent, out of my sleeping bag, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember I put all my camping stuff in the garage and I just didn't go camping anymore because it wasn't all that great. You know, the cow chips, the thorns, and all that stuff, this wasn't all that great. Well, then we moved in seventh grade. We moved to Northwest Colorado. And I've shared this with you all before, but, you know, my, my family and I, we were invited to this little Baptist church. We went, and I heard the gospel for the first time. I heard that Jesus had died for me, and that if I wanted to believe and trust in him. I could have salvation. And so, man, I, I became a Christian there on a Sunday morning there at Calvary Baptist Church. And it wasn't long after that, we started kind of getting integrated into the church. And there were a few families in the church that said, hey, we're going to go camping. There's this really remote national forest. It's called Black Mountain. Y'all want to go with us? And we were like, yeah. And so we go. And you go to Black Mountain, still true today, there are no right campgrounds. You just kind of pull off the side of a dirt road. You camp anywhere you want. And we did that. And we're about 9,000 feet. Man, I'll never forget it. We set up a campfire. There's a guy there. His name is Tom. 
And uh, Tom, you know, he brought his guitar. And man, we're singing John Denver songs around the campfire, 9,000 feet. There's big, beautiful pine trees everywhere, aspen trees all over the place. And I had gotten my camping stuff that I still had from fifth grade. And I had taken my little orange pup tent. I kind of set it up kind of, you know, like six or 800 yards away from the main camp because I was going to really camp, kind of be on my own. And so we're singing songs around the campfire, and, you know, Tom would play some of those old hymns, and we would sing those together. We didn't really know them, but we were kind of humming along, you know, that kind of thing. And I just remember thinking, man, this is so great. And then it got late. Everybody said, okay, it's time to go to bed. And so I start walking from, my, from the campfire to my little orange pup tent about 600 yards away. Man, I'll never forget, man, I looked up in the sky, and again, 9,000 feet far from any light pollution, man, I could see the Milky Way like I have never seen it before or since. It was incredible. I remember just standing there looking at it. And while I'm sitting there looking at the Milky Way, I was so stunned. All of a sudden, here comes a meteor shower. And man, meteors just start streaking across the sky. And I just, I get chills talking about it. And I remember I was only 13 years old. But I just remember my heart being so filled with gratitude and my heart being so filled with just awe. Like, I can't believe how beautiful this is. And we just got through singing all these songs around the campfire with all these people. I love camping now. This is great. You know, and it was so pretty. And I just thought to myself, God, thank you so much for all that you've done for me. I was so grateful to God. It was the most glorious thing I had ever seen. And when I look back now, that is such a great illustration of how God had kind of transported me, how God had changed me. He had reworked me. And so that, you know, I've gone from, uh, you know, the dirt and the mesquite trees and the cow chips, okay, gone from that to, uh, to pine trees and aspen trees and mountain meadows and these beautiful stars in the sky and the and just the display of the glory of God. So, so incredible. It was as if I had been transferred from one realm to another, which is not at all unlike another group of guys that were out camping that we read about in the Christmas story. This is Luke chapter 2. You're very familiar with this. I'm reading from the New English Translation. There were shepherds nearby living out in the field, keeping guard over their flock at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were absolutely terrified. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. Listen carefully, for I proclaim to you good news that brings great joy to all the people. Today your Savior is born in the city of David. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth, lying in a manger, and then suddenly, look at verse 13. A vast heavenly army appeared with the angel praising God. Now, when you see that, that word right there, the shepherds witnessed an army of luminous angels. And when you see this word army, the Greek word stratia is where we get our word strata or stratosphere. And it, you, know, you kind of get it in your mind, you, use your imagination, a massive army that would stretch from one horizon to the other a huge, huge mass of people. And this is, what the, this is what the shepherds saw that night, probably stretching from horizon to horizon. We don't know if they were hovering in the air, if they were standing on the hillsides, but they just saw this vast expanse 
filled with these luminous angels. And if that wasn't stunning enough, then this vast army of angels, they begin to speak in unison. I cannot imagine what that would have sounded like. It would have sounded like thunder or roaring water. And we've grown up hearing that the angels said, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And we're so thankful for the King James Bible because it has had such a profound impact on American history and Western civilization. But most scholars today agree that they probably said this, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among people with whom he is pleased. Most newer translations have the word pleased, with whom he is pleased. And so today, what I want to talk to you about is the joy of pleasing God. The joy of pleasing God. The great paradox of the Christmas season is we sing so many songs about joy. You know, and and we hark the herald angels sing, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, many Americans have to face a huge battle. A huge battle. And some of you may be battling that right now with sadness during the Christmas holidays. In fact, depression rates go up dramatically during the holiday season. Why does this happen? Well, first of all, the holiday season brings back so many memories and our families change so dramatically over time. You know, I had a great conversation with a young man just last week and we talked about this, just how much our families change over time. It might be death, it might be divorce, it might be conflict, who knows what it is, but there's always someone missing at every meal and in every photo. And for some people, that really hits hard. It can really, really hit hard. I remember the first Christmas after my father died. It was really, really tough. Some of you are going to face that this year. This will be your first holiday without someone that you dearly love. And and so I just want you to know my heart's with you. Also, the time pressure is so intense. You know, you have so much you want to get done, and you have so little time to get it done in. And man, you're burning the midnight oil, you know, night after night. And that song, God rest you, merry gentlemen, you're like, yeah, I wish I could. I wish I could rest. I'd be much happier. I'd be much more merry if I could. But you can't rest. And then the money pressure. You know, Americans are going to spend $275 billion on Christmas presents this year. That's 20 billion, not million, billion more than last year. It's incredible how much. So that puts a lot of pressure on us financially. And then add to that the loneliness that so many people feel during the Christmas season. According to some new research from Gallup, one in four adults in America say they feel either very lonely or fairly lonely. And many people who are already lonely are going to be separated from their family. Maybe it's work or it's the expense of travel. Maybe it's the military. We don't know what it might be. But you get separated from your family. And the irony is that Gallup found that loneliness is actually hitting younger people harder than older folks. When I was growing up, the stereotypical lonely person was always that person who was older, who didn't really have their family around anymore. But today, it is the people who are 18 to 25 who are the loneliest group in America. Uh, 63% more likely to be lonely than those over the age of 65. Moms and dads, if you have a teenager in the house, you have a son or daughter who's off at college, you need to be talking to them during the holidays because they're on their phone, I guarantee you, and they're watching other people living their very best life 
And you need to really be watching and making sure that your children don't fall into that pit of loneliness during the holiday season. And then Christmas puts pressure on relationships, doesn't it? It really does. It seems like there's always some kind of conflict going on in the family. When you get the extended family together, someone once says that once said, Christmas is a time when you get homesick, even when you're home or because you're home, okay? And uh, that, that song, you know, I'll be home for Christmas. Some of you are like, man, I hate that song. I really don't want to go home for Christmas because I've got to talk to the family, okay? And we all know that in America today, though, it's more than Christmas. There's kind of a pandemic of sadness right now in our nation. And all the data, all the research, all the polling backs this up. And many people are asking this question, how can I find joy? Where can I find joy? I haven't felt sincere joy in so long. What is that anyway? What is joy? Joy is an unwavering sense of satisfaction, optimism, confidence, and anticipation that comes from a true perspective of God's present goodness in our lives and, most importantly, our future glory with Him. Where is the joy in our country? As America moves farther and farther away from what I would call biblical literacy, we know less and less of the Word of God. And as we know less and less about who God is, what He does, and where we're going with Him, then we're going to see sadness, worry, and anxiety increase because of this definition of joy. Colossians chapter 1. I apologize. I told you wrong. Colossians chapter 1. There were some false teachers who had come to this city called Colossa, and they were mixing in some elements of paganism and Judaism into the teachings of Christianity. Paul was very alarmed by this. Now, he's under house arrest. He's, he's in Rome. He's chained to a Roman soldier, but he was asked to write a letter to help them understand the truth about Jesus, the truth about the glory to come. And so he writes this letter. It's, a, it's an incredibly profound letter, and it's so, so important. I encourage you to read it. It's so, so good. And so look at verse 9 and on and following. He says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life, underline this in your Bible now, worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. Please underline that for sure in your Bible. Please him in every way. How do you do that? He says, he tells us four things. Bearing fruit in every good work. Growing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, look at that phrase there, please him in every way. It's a really dramatic word. This is the only time it's ever used in your Bible. And in the ancient world, in the world of ancient Rome, 
it, it, it kind of had a negative connotation. It was not really a virtue, the word that Paul uses here. It was used to describe someone uh, who ingratiated themselves to someone with power or money. You know, they're always trying to be near them. Like, remember the teacher's pet? You know, in class, you know, the teacher's handing out papers. It's like, you know, oh, Miss Smith, can I do that for you? We'd all roll our eyes, you know, like, oh, my goodness, you know, you're awful. Sort of like Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. You know, just you're kind of trying to be around people with power and money, you know, that kind of thing. And the word he uses here is a servant whose attentiveness to his master's will is like all-consuming. And they try to anticipate their master's desire and fulfill them before they even speak. And so what the Bible writers did is they... They took this word from Roman, the, the, from Roman society. It had kind of a negative connotation, but because of the lordship, the supremacy of Jesus, they transformed it into a positive. And so 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, we really want to be away from this body and be at home with the Lord. Our only goal is to always please the Lord whether we're living here in this body or with him. I don't know what you might be thinking about today, what you have on your mind today. I'm sure you've got a thousand things running through your mind. But there's one thing I want you to leave with here today. Our objective in life, if we want joy, is to please the Lord. How? Those four things. Number one is bearing good fruit. Look at verse 10. He says, bearing fruit in every good work. You know, when I think about fruit at Christmas, I always think about two things. There used to be a sweet older couple in our church, Hugh and Margaret Dickey. They're with the Lord now. But every Christmas, we would get this big box on our porch, and it was these massive oranges. They're nothing like this right here. I got this at Walmart. Okay, it's not a Walmart orange, man. These were amazing oranges. They're like two times bigger than this, big and sweet and juicy. Just the other day, Melanie said, man, don't you miss those oranges? Yeah, those were really, really good. All right, so we, we get these oranges at Christmas. You know, the other fruit you always think about at Christmas is cranberries, all right? You ever look at these things? I tasted one this morning just to try to make sure I did. I remember correctly. These are awful. These are terrible. Man, it's like, no, this is like trash. It really, they really are. And uh, you got to ask yourself, when the pilgrims came to America, and one of them ate a cranberry, who said, hey, we should plant more of these trees. These things are awful. These are terrible. Cranberries are so bad that when you take the juice of cranberries, the only way you can drink it is to mix it with some other fruit like orange or apple or something like that. I mean, these are terrible. They're awful. They're wretched. Okay, they really are. And yet the people at the cranberry farms are laughing all the way to the bank because somehow they've convinced us that we have to buy these terrible little pieces of you know, pieces of fruit every Christmas. You can't like actually put them in the punch. You just let them float on top because if you let them mix in, you know, it'd be so, so bad. And I want you to think about this today. When you think about bearing fruit as a Christian, all right, um, are you more like this or are you more like that? You know, a cranberry Christian. Don't be, you're going to remember this, I hope. Don't be a cranberry Christian, all right? You don't want to be a cranberry Christian. Why not? Cranberries are bitter and sour inside. On the outside, they look pretty good, which is kind of how they make a living. They're red, you know, it's like, hey, they look kind of Christmassy. That's it. Now, they look good on the outside, but on the inside, man, they are awful. They are really, really terrible. And so Deuteronomy chapter 10, what does the Lord require of you? 
that you fear the Lord and live in a life that please, live in a way that pleases Him and love Him and serve Him with all your heart. What is the fruit killer in our lives? What is it that makes somebody who is destined to be something more like this, you know, really sweet, really, really great inside into something more like that, you know, bitter, hard, and sour inside? It's the power of pretense. The power of pretense. It's so seductive. We can become experts at the Christian lingo, the Christian routines, all the while not experiencing any real fruit. And our heart can remain self-centered and angry, narcissistic, and joyless while we go through the motions of religious Christianity. Galatians chapter 5 says, The Spirit produces fruit like these, love and then joy. In Christ, we've been granted a radically transformed heart. And joy is one evidence of that. Joy is one of the fruits of that. And all of us stumble from time to time, absolutely. And we might stumble into a season of sadness, especially during the holidays. But Jesus told us clearly, here is how you bear good fruit, not cranberries, all right? Good fruit, and good fruit includes joy. John 15, 4, no branch can produce fruit alone, Jesus said. It must stay connected to the vine. You cannot produce fruit alone. You must stay joined to me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Separated from me, you won't be able to do anything. When we are separated from the Lord, we become more like this become a cranberry Christian, if we neglect our spiritual life, if we ignore the Word of God, we neglect our, our prayer life, we disengage in worship, inevitably what we do, we withhold our very heart, our very soul from the workings of the Spirit of God. And then what happens? We can still do the lingo, we can still do the routines, absolutely, but inside, sour and bitter, We're like a branch that's broken off the vine and the joy in our life vanishes. So yeah, don't be a cranberry Christian. Stay engaged in those disciplines. Stay stay attached to the vine. Soak up Jesus, which brings us to number two. He says in verse 10 also, growing in the knowledge of God. That word knowledge that he uses there, it's another really unique word that Paul chose here. And it means it's an intense form of the Greek word for knowledge. There's a Greek scholar named Kenneth Weiss, and he said this. He said, the particular word for knowledge here is not an intellectual knowledge of the facts concerning God acquired by, you know, Bible study, but a hard experience of what and who he is gained by study plus a personal association with him. It is a person with person knowledge through intimate fellowship. Paul is praying that believers would grow in their knowledge of God himself. And this leads to good fruit. This leads to joy. Ecclesiastes 2.26 says, To those who seek to please God, he gives wisdom and knowledge and joyfulness. Most of us want to bear good fruit. Absolutely. You're sitting there right now saying, I want to bear good fruit. I don't want to be a cranberry Christian. All right. I want to have a vibrant, productive spiritual life that is a blessing to the people around me. Many Christians, they hear about God. They carry his book around, but they're not really getting to know him. 
to know Him. And you don't want to just visit God on a Sunday, but you want to be constantly seeking to know God. How? Every moment of every day, just having this ongoing conversation with God, speaking with God, saying, God, I want to know you when you're driving, when you're mowing the grass, when you're raking the leaves, uh, when you're uh, you know, working with the kids, whatever you might do. Lord, I just want to know you. Scripture up around your house, on the walls in your house, Scripture everywhere you can put it, just constantly say, Lord, I want to know you. I don't want to just know the Bible. I don't want to just know the doctrines. Lord, I want to know you. That is the cry of your heart. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter said, May grace and peace be lavished upon you because you grow in your knowledge of God. Isn't that incredible? Grace and peace be lavished upon you. How? When you grow in your knowledge of God. And when the Lord has an impact on your heart, that is when you begin to have an impact on others. When you know Him is when you make Him known. Number three, all right, we, we absolutely we want to be bearing good fruit. We want to be broadening in our knowledge of God, but we have to be building an enduring strength. Look at verse 11. I love this part. He says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience. When you read the book of Colossians, the theme is the sovereign power and the supremacy of Christ over all things. And it's kind of hard for me to soak this in, but Paul wrote this letter, as I mentioned a moment ago, from captivity. He doesn't have his freedom. He can't leave and go wherever he wants to go. He is stuck. He is a prisoner chained to a Roman soldier awaiting trial. And there he is talking about the supremacy and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. I think to myself, how is it possible to have this attitude? Notice the word power. When you think about power in the Christian life, What pops into your mind? Is it driving out demons? Is it miraculous healing? Is it uh, explosive church growth and things like that? Paul says God's power is most evident when his people have great endurance and patience in the midst of life's most difficult times. It's unexplainable to the watching world. How do they do it? Their husband just died. Their wife just died. Uh, They just went bankrupt, but they had joy. They're just moving on. How is that possible? There's a power there. You see, there is a joy that is steadfast in our sorrows, triumphant in our troubles, and it outlasts our losses. It is there for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, This brings you great joy. Although you may have to suffer for a short time in various trials, such trials show the character of your faith, which is much more valuable than gold and will bring praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter is not saying that the quality of a Christian's faith will be proven by future trials. He says, your faith is already proven. It's already there. Your faith is genuine. Your faith being your relationship with Christ by grace. It is your salvation by grace through faith that is proven. It's refined. It's improved, so to speak, 
in the midst of trials. When the trials of life comes, that is when your faith actually proves itself. That is when it reveals its value. And we know our faith is great because when trials and troubles come, they don't break us. They actually better us. And that's why James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work so that you, you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. As Christians, we know when trials and troubles come into our lives, God is doing something deep, something profound that is changing the very character of our being. We know this, and so this is why James says, count it all joy. And look at the most powerful word in the passage. It's the shortest word in the passage, all, A-L-L. There's not just some joy. There's not just much joy. There is all joy, he says, we should have when we fall into various trials. There's a supernatural joy that comes only from God himself. You can't generate it from within yourself. It rises from the knowledge that God is using the trials of life, the troubles of this present day to prepare you to do a deep work in you that gets you ready for God's eternal purpose in your eternal home. This is why he says in Romans 5, Paul wrote, our faith has brought us access to God's grace in which we stand and we rejoice because of the hope we have of experiencing God's glory. We also have joy with our troubles because we know that these troubles produce endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. And I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. When you know that God is doing something in your life to change your character and you can sense it, you can feel it happening, you know this means that God is preparing me for glory and this gives you hope. I am heaven bound. This world is not my home. What a beautiful thing. And number four, look at verse 11 and 12. Becoming persistently grateful where Paul says, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Joyfully giving thanks. There are four times, I read Colossians yesterday for my quiet time. Four times in this letter, it's a very short letter, only four chapters. Four times in this letter, Paul talks about being grateful. Being a grateful people, being filled with thanksgiving, overflowing with thankfulness, he says in uh, Colossians chapter 3. Filled with gratitude. He talks about this so much. He was years ahead of his time because there's an abundance of research being done now at universities like Harvard that talks about the importance of gratitude. And you're hearing so many business leaders and thought leaders today saying, we need to be, we need to be grateful. People say, sit down every morning and write down what you're grateful for. These people are not Christians, but it's backed up by research. They see it happening. The power of gratitude. It has a huge impact on our mindset, our attitude, and our mental health because being grateful creates contentment and it actually creates joy. But here's the great question. How can I be grateful when the circumstances of my life are really unpleasant? Can't get a promotion at work. 
My kids don't respect me. I can't afford a big enough house. All those things. In Paris, it was announced this last week, in Paris, there's a, uh, uh, a fashion designer, a fashion house. It's called Hermes. I've never heard of it. Maybe some of you ladies have, but it's kind of contemporary with like Christian uh, Dior. Uh, I'm write this down. Yeah, Christian Dior, uh, Louis Vuitton, and Chanel. And uh, the maker of the Birkin bag, which I don't know exactly. I think some of y'all might know what this is. But uh, a Hermes purse that was made of Himalayan crocodile leather. I didn't know there were crocodiles in the Himalayas. Okay, I didn't know that. But this purse sold for $300,000 at auction not too long ago. Well, the heir to the Hermes fashion, uh, the heir to the Hermes fashion empire is a man who's about 80 years old. I can't pronounce his name, so I'm not going to try, okay? But his net worth is in the billions of dollars. Listen to this. This last week, he's unmarried. He has no children of his own. It came out in the New York Post. He is going to legally adopt his 51-year-old gardener. His gardener is, quote, a man, a family man of modest means, and he's going to legally adopt his gardener so that his 51-year-old gardener will inherit his billions of dollars. So this 51-year-old gardener is going to inherit somewhere in the neighborhood of $6 billion plus property in France and a ski chateau in Switzerland. Isn't that incredible? Wow. Look at verse 12. Why should we joyfully give thanks to God even when life is really, really hard? He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. This desire to please God, it rises out of this joyful gratitude to the father for the spiritual blessings. Just try to take that in. Read that again. He gives you a share in the inheritance of his kingdom of light. I guarantee if Mr. Hermes were to say, you know what, I'm going to drop the gardener. I'm going to pick out an electrician living in Borger, Texas. One of us would be like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And you'd be so filled with joy at it being given $6 billion and a, and a chateau in Switzerland. Absolutely you would be. But look at what the, God, the word of God says. He gives you a share in the inheritance of his kingdom of light. I know a lot of people right now in Paris going, adopt me, adopt me. And God says, I have adopted you. I have adopted you. You are mine and you are beloved. He rescued you from the powers of darkness. No amount of billions of dollars will ever do this. Rescue you from the torments of the demons of hell that are traveling around this world that we live in. And he brought you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the sun. And he paid a ransom to forgive you all your sins and redeem you from the slave market of sin. Look at that word qualified there. All right, uh, it's a word in the Greek that means to change something to be made fit. Like, you know, if you have a square peg and you want to fit it into a round hole. When I was a kid, we always got a natural Christmas tree and we're still doing it today. Man, those Boy Scouts are just ripping us off, man. I'm telling you, they're spending, we spend so much money on a tree every, every year. Well, my dad, we'd buy like a kind of a lame Charlie Brown tree, but my dad would always go and ask for the limbs. I still do this today. Years and years later, I learned this from my dad. My dad would ask for the spare limbs laying around the Christmas tree lot. 
And then we'd take this, you know, like Charlie Brown tree with all these bare spots. And dad would take his drill and he would drill holes into the tree trunk. And then this is his knife. This is his pocket knife. And he would take that and he would, he would whittle away and he would whittle on the sticks, right? And he would whittle them down to a point. And then when he got them just right, dad would take these little sticks and then he would, he would fit them into the tree. And next thing you know, little Charlie Brown tree started looking pretty good. It started looking really, really great. But what had to happen first? That limb had to be shaped. It had to be changed. And my dad would sit there and whittle and whittle and whittle until he got it just right. And it would slide in there and it would stick. This is what the Bible is saying that Jesus does for you. He qualifies you for the kingdom. The shepherds in those fields around Bethlehem, they were given just a glimpse of the kingdom of light. The shepherds could have never been qualified for the kingdom on their own. Neither you nor me. But through Christ, God qualifies you. He changes you. He shapes you into the image of his son when you put your faith and your trust in him. And then he qualifies you. Look at verse 13. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son. Is Christ your Savior today? If He is not, the Bible says you're living under the dominion of darkness. Is Christ your Savior? If He is, God has qualified you and brought you into the kingdom of His Son. And the contrast between the two could not be more profound. Darkness and light. The darkness is demonic, it's evil, it's slavery, it's sin, it's lies, it's futility, it's misery. No billions of dollars could ever save you from that. I'm so happy for that gardener in France, but he's still stuck in the kingdom of darkness, ladies and gentlemen, because he might've been adopted by a billionaire, but he was not adopted by the king of kings who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But you have been, if you know Jesus as your savior, and he's brought you into the kingdom of light It's angelic, it's good, there's liberty, there's righteousness, truth, purpose, and joy. This is why 1 Peter, Peter says this, you who believe are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so you're sitting here today, my boss says I'm not qualified for the job that I want. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you are qualified for the kingdom of light. You might say, my kids don't respect me. You've been rescued from the dominion of darkness. You might be sitting here today, one of the students, I I failed my test. God has brought you into the kingdom of the son that he loves. You might be sitting here today thinking, I can't buy the house that I want. I don't have the money to buy the house that I want. You have an inheritance in the kingdom of Of God, the Bible says. No matter what happens in life, in this life, it pales in comparison to what is awaiting you in the next in Christ. And this is the reality that consumes all cares and all concerns. And we joyfully give thanks because we have so much to be grateful for. Ephesians chapter 5 At one time you were darkness, but now You are light in the Lord. Live like children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. 
trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. You know, I came to Borger back in May of 1989, and uh, my plan was to stay for the summer and then move on. My life plan was to get back to Colorado as soon as I got a degree. My parents and I, we left Colorado when I was a senior in high school. They said, you got to come to Texas. And I loved Colorado for all those reasons I just talked to you about. And I couldn't wait to get back. And so man, I, my life plan was as soon as I finished my geology degree, I'm going to go back to Colorado and I'm going to get my, I have my teaching certification. I'm going to teach school. I'm going to camp a lot. I'm going to coach some football, maybe go on field trips with those kids. It's going to be a great, great life. And I come up here and this church was great. It was Keeler Baptist Church. My pastor was awesome. And I met this beautiful girl named Melanie and uh, uh, we were dating. And then one day out of the blue, uh, some of you know Larry Kaufman. He was the superintendent of schools here at Borger back in those days. He says, hey, I got an odd thing I want to ask you. I've got a part-time science position at the middle school here. Would you consider taking it? And I was like, well, I, I don't think so. I mean, it's part-time, you know. But I said, let me think about it, you know. And I said, I, I, was just, I was just so grateful to God for all he was doing in my life at that time. I was growing in the Lord. And I said, I'd met this beautiful girl. The youth group was growing. It was really great. But I, I wanted to get back to Colorado, right? And I went to my pastor and I said, man, I, was, I had a really weird phone call today. Man, I just, Larry Kaufman called me. And, hey, you know, offered me a part-time job. And then Wyatt said, well, would you consider staying if we made you part-time youth pastor? And then you be part-time teacher. We can't afford to have you on staff full-time, but maybe we could part-time. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. You know, if I do that, that means I'm not going to Colorado, getting back to my life plan. And uh, being honest with you, at that time in my life, I had no intention of spending my life in the ministry. I did not feel a call in my life to ministry. Well, a few days later, my pastor told me the deacons had approved that salary increase, and it was my decision. So I did what I often do. I, I went hiking, I went walking, took a walk with God, and I got to the edge of the end of Evergreen Street, you know, and there's this couple of big hills out there in the canyons. And I thought, man, I need to go out there and just sit under the stars and talk to God. And I was probably trespassing, you know, but I got, climbed over the fence and I walked way out in the canyon, way out. I just sat underneath the stars, just like I often do. You know, prior to that time in my life, I was always like, God, help me do this. You know, God, I have a plan. Would you please help me with my plan? You know? And the reason I remember that so much is because I can remember vividly probably one of the very first times in my life that I looked up and I said, Lord, I just want to please you. I just want to please you. What do you want me to do? What, what would you have me do? And ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you, it was as clear as the stars in the sky that night. This peace just came over me and all my life plan. It was a battle. I won't lie to you. It was a battle because I wanted to get back to Colorado, you know, and do that life thing that I had planned up there. But just as surely as the stars in the sky, I just had this peace come over me and I knew I was supposed to stay. I knew I was supposed to stay. And so I did. And it has meant nothing but joy for me. Nothing but joy. But it all began 
when in my own heart, I just said, Lord, I just want to please you. Psalm 97.11 says, light shines on the godly and joy on those whose hearts are right. I truly believe that. I know my heart's not right all the time, but I really believe that's a principle of life. When our hearts are right, Lord, I just want to please you. There's joy. Let's bow our heads together today, if we could. And I just want to ask you to go before the Lord today. And I just want to ask if you've trusted in something else for your joy. Have you trusted in something else for your joy other than just pleasing God? And if you have, you might know that if when you heard the story about the designer adopting the child, your first thought was, oh, I wish that was me. Oh, I just so wish that was me because then I would be happy. Then I would have joy. If I had a chateau in Switzerland and billions of dollars, then I would be happy. Then I would have joy. Can I just tell you that means that that means that there's some work that needs to be done in your heart. There's some work that needs to be done in your heart. And I'll be honest with you, that's true for me too because I had the same thought. Oh, I wish that was me. But what does it mean to walk in God's pleasure? In God's pleasure. A heart and a life whose constant refrain is, Lord, I just want to please you. Today, Lord, I want to please you. In this next conversation, I want to please you. Around the supper table tonight, Lord, I want to please you. Around the Christmas tree in a week, Lord, I want to please you. Your constant refrain. That's a life filled with joy. And so, Lord, I just want to thank you so much that you've taken us from the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And, Lord, there might be any of us here today who has not trusted you and you alone for their joy. But, Lord, if we have trusted in some other thing for joy, would you please reveal that to us today? And, Lord, just give us a freedom in our deep heart, Lord, to please you always. And we ask this for your glory and praise today, Jesus. Amen. Amen.